presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So again, it's really nice to be with everybody tonight. I'm hoping that you can hear me okay. And as I mentioned at the beginning, this will be our last class this summer. And then we begin again on September, Monday, September 13th for the fall course. I believe it will be eight weeks and we'll be doing the fourth Satipatthana, uh, Mindfulness of Dhammas. It usually, Dhammas is usually untranslated, but it's really, um, now that we've trained the mind how to be aware of the body, be aware of feeling, tone, be aware of the mind, seeing, knowing the mind, right at the mind. Then we basically are studying the activity of the mind, the activity of the hindrances, the activity of the awakening factors, and in particular the natural process of the mind coming into balance with the awakening factors, coming into this very powerful, wise balance that can see things as they are the mind that is inclined toward awakening and that awakening process itself. And that, like just like in the last three Satipatthanas, keeping the body in mind, learning how to keep the body in mind, learning how to keep feeling tone in mind, this summer class, learning how to keep the mind in mind, and then even more subtly, knowing, learning how to keep the awakening process in mind the most relevant thing to keep in mind, but very subtle. And the kind of effort that's required is very refined. It's not something, it's not a mountain that, sometimes we think about the awakening process as I, this lowly guy here in the valley, have to climb this high mountain, trudge up it, and it's a lot of work. And I know spiritual practice can seem like a lot of work at times. But the awakening process is a natural process. It has its own natural (laughs) feedback mechanisms. And so it's really all the effort is really about aligning with these natural processes that lead to awakening, right? Because uh, (laughs) anytime we are interpreting the awakening process as something the self has to do, a red flag should go off, like, uh, that doesn't sound like the Buddhist teachings. You know, that there is some guy who's got to be this, you know, fearless spiritual practitioner and uh, march through hell on their way to Nibbana. So before I share a little bit, and we'll have small groups tonight, um, I just want to respond to some questions that were sent in. And this person sent in two questions. I'll read them. First question is, why is anger, which seems more like an emotion than an activity of the mind to me, in my experience, highlighted in this instruction? So you remember the first part of mindfulness of the mind is, you know, one knows lust, a mind with lust to be a mind with lust. One knows a mind without lust to be a mind that is without lust a mind with aversion to be a mind with aversion, a mind without aversion to be a mind without aversion. Why not another emotion? 
I think you may have used aversion as a synonym once in observing whether anger is present, although I could be mistaken. Noticing aversion makes sense to me because it seems like activity of the mind. By anger, but anger seems like a whole body emotional state. And so this is confusing to me. Could you offer your thoughts on this? Yeah, I think uh, when we talk about greed, hatred, and delusion as these unwholesome roots, they're, uh, you know, they're really intentions or motivations, uh, the way the mind frames its experience. So they're a kind of an active part of intending to do. And intention has impact, both in a wholesome way. It's in a way we, we say it's what lays down or sets in motion karmic fruits when we the intention um, sets leaves an impression that leads colors future experience. So that's what anger is or aversion or hate. You know, we have these different words um, that's basically pointing to that intention to push away, to hide away. Even fear is an expression of aversion. So it's okay if you, you know, with English, you know, we might have some kind of connotation for the word anger or hatred or irritation or aversion or rage. But basically we're trying to very quickly in our lived experience recognize when there's that intention to push away. Just like greed is that intention to hold on, to gather, to make mine. Right? So they're both a reaction to the present moment. Present moment is not okay because I need to push this away. Or the present moment is not okay because I need this. So whether it's greed or aversion, there's the mind, the heart has a problem with the present moment. It's not what it, what it wants. And that's the important thing to recognize. And, and you're right that anger will be, any of these strong intentions, especially the unskillful, will have a very obvious, or almost always have an obvious bodily expression. Because often, most often, the body is mirroring what's going on in the mind. The body is the innocent victim of what the mind does. And it's like the mind, when it's identified with these unwholesome intentions, attached, acting upon these unwholesome intentions like aversion, then the body receives that tension. The second question the person asks, I don't think I understand what is meant by delusion. When I think I understand it as anything that captures the attention of the mind and instead brings it into the past or present, I think it might make sense, but I'm just not certain that this is the intended definition. What is your understanding of the meaning of delusion? Yeah, not knowing or uh, not seeing clearly, not being connected, even thinking that I know is uh, an expression of delusion because however my mind might conceive it, like thinking I know on that conceptual level is a, a disconnection because the mind, the heart, isn't naturally 
interested in connecting and being intimate in that direct or intuitive way because I think I know what's happening happening or I think I know what this experience is so that identification with the idea I think I know is a block from moment by moment connecting and knowing in that immediate sense yeah so it's a disconnection and often is expressed by the mind having a fixed view or a fixed idea um, that's often and it might be a really good idea but the idea isn't the reality ideas can bring the mind like create a bridge in a sense encourage the mind to connect you know the dharma as a set of teachings from the buddha you know their ideas their thoughts but presumably if, if they're used correctly they bring the heart the mind into the immediacy of the present moment if you learn buddhism or the teachings of the buddha and you just stay on the level of philosophy well then those teachings have failed you know and especially in early buddhism there's you know we hear it so often that it can feel a little off this word practice but we use that word practice as a way of remembering that that's the point not the ideas of the practice but to take the ideas and to use them in terms of opening to the present moment and seeing learning having insight about the way that it is so a good set means we've seen something we haven't seen before not that we thought something we haven't thought before but we directly experience something that the mind hadn't experienced before and that mind going forward is then different because it experienced something it hadn't experienced before and you know one of the interesting things i think i mentioned earlier in the course is the mind doesn't learn something doesn't have insight unless it has some stability some balance where it can it's willing to let experience in a sense reveal itself so that hands off and you know we talk about spaciousness and equanimity or balance but it really it really points to this uh in some ways at least this aspect of wise effort you know we can't have an aggressive effort it has to be more like resting in the space in the open space of the present moment and noticing what's coming and going and not trying to control because if we're trying to control or trying to have my experience fit what i read in a buddhist book then i'm not actually going to see things as they are so then that sense you know our experience is our true teacher and we really have to give it you know this chance to teach us here's a couple of quotes from one of my teachers saida utejaniya if you are not aware you cannot know that you are thinking the fact that you recognize that you are thinking means you are aware and then another little teaching he says when you feel disturbed by the thinking mind remind yourself that you are not practicing to prevent thinking 
but rather to recognize and acknowledge thinking whenever it arises. So even like at the beginning of the sit where we use the breathing process as a more exclusive object, it isn't so much to suppress thinking or to get rid of thinking, but it creates like when I have that stability of awareness with the recognizing breathing in and recognizing breathing out, then when there's some other mental activity, fantasizing or thinking about something earlier in the day, because there's a lot of non-reactivity, like the mind is connecting with the breathing in and the breathing out in a really honest, balanced way, then when a thought, an emotion, uh, some negativity, some aversiveness, when something arises, then that balance is going to see that as just something coming and going, as just another phenomena of the body or mind. So we use a lot of our meditation objects are used to help the heart, to help the mind remember that I can be with the present moment in this balanced, non-reactive, non-controlling, non-judgmental way. And we we rediscover it by going back to our you know our meditation object like mindfulness of breathing, but it isn't that other phenomena aren't going to come and go. It's just that being with the breath, because I've trained with the breath, the mind remembers. Oh yeah, I can, I can be interested in this really pure way. I can better connect because I've been practicing connecting with the phenomena of breathing in and the phenomena of breathing out. And I, the heart, in a way, builds confidence that it knows how to unify, to gather in the present moment. So even if another strong experience comes, I remember one of my first residential retreats many, many years ago, um, and it was like right in the middle of a nine-day retreat, and somebody, you know, 15 feet away, just had one of those big sneezes, in the middle of the of a hour long set and uh and I remember it's like um and I was I think at that time we were doing a body scan meditation, you know, each set we'd just do this body scan meditation. And uh so, you know, I was in the middle of that and then the sound and of course the attention just went to the sound. It wasn't Mark saying, Oh, I should listen to that sound of the sneeze, right? It was clearly the predominant experience. And because it was unexpected, it got the mind or the um, attention of the mind. But I noticed that, and it it was very impactful because, you know, the meditation hall was quiet and then all of a sudden there was a loud noise. But I, And so in a way, the hearing of the sneeze was very impactful. But at the same time, there was there was no reverberations in the mind. It was like being hit by a tsunami which came and then left but the mind, the continuity of present moment awareness wasn't disturbed even though the sound relative to the subtlety of being with sensation with the body scan the sound was a very gross obvious experience so it had kind of buffeted the sensitivity of the heart and then it was gone and uh, because the heart 
the mind was in <clears throat> in the uh, had some momentum of just being in the present moment, it didn't bother to construct anything, any opinion about the sneeze. Oh, that person shouldn't have sneezed, or whoa, was that a loud sneeze? Right? It didn't need. It was just some big thing happened, was known, and then it ceased. And then the mind went back to being with the body scan. And this is a sign like how because the mind, what was really going on in the mind <clears throat> wasn't even so much the body scan, but you see that as the mind develops some samadhi, the experience of samadhi itself is part of what's being known by the knowing mind, the, the balance and the stability of the balance and the appropriateness of the effort to persist, persist in connecting with what's being known in the moment and the relevance of that. Like all of that, that collectedness, that stability, those wholesome qualities of that knowing mind, that is as relevant, like how the mind is knowing with this in this really balanced way, in this really stable way, that is more relevant than, you know, the different sensations that are being known as the mind continues with the body scan or whatever, you know, breathing in, breathing out or whatever the, the um, method of meditation might be. This is from Venable Analio's book that we've been, some of you have been using as a primary text uh, for both, uh, for all the courses from the first one in the winter on the body and the spring course on feeling tone, now the mindfulness of the mind in the summer, and also we'll use this for the fall course. Um, and that's his book, Satipatthana Meditation, A Practice Guide by this German monk, Analeo. And this is the chapter um, on mindfulness of the mind, and he's writing about the absence of the defilement, defilements, the kind of corruptions or torments of the mind. And I mentioned this in the guided sit, like to really notice what's not there. It's really relevant to notice what's missing. You know, like how often do we notice when there's no aversion, that there's no aversion in the mind. And this is what he writes. It is of considerable importance that the need evident in the list of mental states, as well as in the refrain, to direct attention to the passing away of a defiled mental state is not overlooked. The task of mindfulness is not only to draw attention to the presence of a defilement, it similarly involves giving attention to the absence of a de defilement like greed and anger or greed and aversion. We can savor the condition of the mind at such times. We get a feel for its texture and familiarize ourselves with it. We can experience for ourselves how much more pleasant such a condition is when compared to the defiled state of mind. Familiarizing ourselves with the difference between the presence and the absence of a defilement in terms of the texture and flavor of the mind, will make it intuitively clear why the latter is preferable to the former. And, you know, just in simple terms, 
we don't realize how oppressive having an irritated, aversive mind is until we clearly taste, recognize the mind free of aversion. Then it really becomes unbearable when we slide back because of habit into an aversive mind or a greedy mind. We don't realize how tight that is. One of the great things about being on a longer retreat where the mind gets really refined is if, if and not if, when the mind gets caught up in some drama, you know, regurgitates some painful event from the past and gets in some sort of revenge fantasy or whatever it might be. And then at some point, mindfulness kicks back in and that wisdom awareness notices kind of surveys the destruction <laughs> in the heart. Oh, oh, because in daily life when we're in these unwholesome states a lot of the time, we don't realize what gets laid down when the mind is involved in lust for 20 minutes or involved in hate for 20 minutes or two minutes or whatever it might be. But this contrast from having a uh, a relatively stable and pure and simple mind to what happens when the mind is in these storms of greed, hatred, and delusion, then we start to feel really motivated to take care of the heart. Because it's like, uh, you know, you get yourself through some keeping the wholesome qualities in mind. We really can cultivate such beautiful states of mind and then it, and then you know, we space out. The mind takes an off ramp. That off ramp leads to another off ramp, which leads to, another, and before we know it, in two or three moments, the mind can be in really negative, unwholesome territory. And then those storms tend to have their own feedback. So once we're in that storm, the tendency is to stay in the storm, to stay in the destructive cycle. And then it's like, oh, even when wisdom returns, wisdom and awareness returns, and the mind is no longer identified, no longer following the feedback loop and feeding the storm, but it might take hours for what has gotten wound up energetically in the body, the tension that's gotten activated energetically in the body, it may take hours for that to settle or to unwind. And that's karma. <laughs> you know, that is the fruit, the natural, inevitable fruit of the mind spinning in unwholesome states. And then we, the mind really learns, wisdom really learns, oh yeah, there's a price to pay. When You know, because we tend to think in more ordinary states of mind that I can, you know, it's like visiting <laughs> negative spaces, you know, I can go down this road and be really angry or be really lustful and no harm done, I'm not acting on it, you know, I'm just, it's just in my own mind and heart. But when we're more sensitive, it, we see it really matters. And we want to really protect the mind. And we think twice about roads, off ramps that we let the mind take. You know, and it's not like we can control it because it's its own wild, natural process, the mind and its habits. But 
One of those habits can be this good friend that say, Honey, do you really want to think that? Do you really want to go that way? Do you really want to regurgitate that? Is it helpful? Will it lead somewhere that is enlivening and releasing and healing? Or does it lead somewhere else, like hell? <laughs> and just that, that honest kind of questioning is so useful. And he goes on in this section, Venerable Analio, to say, <clears throat> we really need to reward the mind. And the way we, we reward the mind, he gives the example of a puppy. You know, if a puppy did something, chewed on something it shouldn't have chewed on, you don't yell at it when it's, you know, when it's already stopped chewing on it, right? You want it to, you want to help the puppy see what's good, experience what's ple pleasant that takes it away from the destructive patterns. You know, I mean, this is just basic behavioral science, you know, where it's just so much more effective to notice the mind and appreciate the mind when it's wholesome than it is, you know, doing the parental finger wag at the mind. And even when we are intervening because the mind is an unwholesome territory, we do it with a lot of understanding, a lot of compassion, with a really wholesome sense of humor, you know, in a gentle way, because it's the only way that works. He writes, if we want the puppy or the child to come when its name is called, we had better give it a reward. Why not reward ourselves for a state of mind that is undefiled? Rejoicing in its absence of defilement is a powerful tool that will make for swift progress on the path to a permanent freedom from defilements. So this uh, summer course, you know, we've been, the mind has been our object of awareness, right? And we're using this stability of present moment awareness to get to know the mind. You remember the refrain, and this refrain is used whenever, you know, in this collection of teachings that we call the Satipatthana discourse, this teaching, the Buddhist teachings on mindfulness, the four foundations of mindfulness, body, feeling, tone, mind, and mind objects or dhammas. Um, there's this refrain that's used 13 times. And it goes something like with, with the mind, it would say, in regard to the mind, one abides contemplating the mind internally or externally or both internally and externally, right? Knowing the mind in the mind. And then the next part of that refrain, or one abides contemplating the nature of arising in the mind, or abides contemplating the nature of passing away in the mind, or both. And then the last piece in the refrain, or mindfulness that there is a mind, is established in one just for the sake of bare knowledge and continuous mindfulness, and one abides independently, not clinging to anything in the world. So uh, you might remember the first week I, I was quoting one of the Thai 
forest masters were, I think, maybe told um, Ajahn Tanisaro, this Western monk who practiced in Thailand for a number of years, to know the mind right at the mind. And I remember another one of those Thai forest masters before Ajahn Sumedho knew Thai, trying to convey some of the essence of the Buddhist teachings, just touched his heart and and said in Thai, but in a way that Ajahn Sumedho got, it's all about this, right? It's all about knowing the mind, knowing the heart, right at the heart. And, you know, this we have to appreciate it's not easy for us because our attention is usually drawn into very gross things like what do I need to do next? Oh, I got to call this person. I got to make my dinner. You know, we're just on this very gross level of our lives and our responsibilities. And that's just how it is. But we can learn that even as we navigate all this gross, ordinary level of being a human being, we can be interested in the mind right at the mind, the heart right at the heart. And when we're here, then we can do that second part, which is, an, it really is that part of understanding what's getting set in motion. When I'm at the heart right at the heart, then I get a sense what kind of seeds are being planted, what sort of intentions, is aversiveness active or kindness? Is greediness active in terms of the intentions or letting go and generosity and contentment? So we see what's arising and passing. We see the the wholesomeness or unwholesomeness of the quality of the intentions that are coming and going, that are acting on the heart, acting in a sense on the moment. What impressions are getting laid down? And then eventually, you know, when that that ability to comprehend what's skillful and unskillful is really strong, then we're really just practicing being independent because the corrective mechanism is already built in. The mind already has the capacity to recognize what's skillful and unskillful. And we can really trust that. We don't have to be the one sort of getting rid of the unwholesome or aiming towards the wholesome because the mind is now in the habit of knowing what's wholesome and unwholesome in terms of the intentions. And that naturally, like I mentioned right at the beginning tonight, it's the natural process that we're aligning with. And when we have that, when we've studied the mind enough, we've been a good student, it's just second nature, you know. It's like if we have a really good Dharma friend, they just sort of quiz us, how's your mind? You know, and and they expect us to know, oh yeah, there's some aversion there, and I'm watching it, I'm on top of it. You know, I can't make that aversion go away, but I can be aware of the aversion, and the awareness of the aversion is not aversive. The awareness of the aversion is loving, it's wise, and it knows that if I'm not careful, the mind can get identified with the aversion, and then suffering can get set in motion. So it doesn't mean that there's not aversion when we're practicing well. 
It just means that wisdom awareness is aware when there's aversion, aware when there's greed. And I was thinking this could be a really good topic for the small groups tonight. Hopefully all of you can stay. Um, and if not, then find a time to have this conversation with a good Dharma friend. But just your own like testimonial about knowing the mind right at the mind. And the, the telltale evidence that you're knowing the mind right at the mind is you're able to comprehend without judgment, without reactivity, when that mind is under the influence of unwholesome intentions like aversion or greed. And how that aversion ceases on its own when it's seen for what it is. So the wisdom awareness doesn't go get rid of the aversion, it just sees that aversion is aversion, sees the unwholesomeness of it. That's the not feeding it. And the same thing, we want to see when there's non-aversion, when there's kindness, wisdom awareness sees the kindness. It doesn't have to like ramp it up. Seeing that kindness is kindness, seeing that it's wholesome, is what strengthens it, makes it shine, makes it radiant, makes it boundless. And this is why there's so much freedom that we discover in the practice. Because part of what we're realizing is we don't even need to carry that load of being the practitioner. Initially, being the practitioner feels like a heavy load because we've got to be vigilant, otherwise I'm going to get swept away by my unhelpful habits of mind, and I'll fall into my habit of being defensive or being irritable or grumpy or whatever you know, each of our particular habit might be. But the more we study the mind in this way, we get to that third part of the refrain where it says, or mindfulness that there is this mind is established in one just for the sake of bare, simple knowledge and continuous mindfulness. And one abides independently, not clinging to anything in the world. Because the abandoning of what's unwholesome and the developing of what's wholesome, that is a natural process. It's not actually the work of the practitioner. It just initially seems that way. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.